0: Our Father, again, we thank you for the privilege and honor to gather together as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to study your word. We thank you that your word is light, and it is in your light that we see light. It is your truth, absolute truth, that gives us the frame of reference for understanding all truth in life. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things that we might Again, a greater appreciation for who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we concluded by looking at the uh, sonships of Jesus Christ coming out of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. I'll just start reading in Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by means of the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by means of his Son. And we came to that term, Son, and we were trying to identify the Sonship in view. So we'll just do a quick review of the sonship of Sonships of Christ. Point number one. There are six sonship titles of Jesus. Five relate to his humanity. Uh, point number one is there are six sonships of Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself. Point number two, of these, one describes his undiminished deity, and the other five sonships emphasize different aspects of his humanity. So, point number three, the first title is The Son of Abraham, which just emphasizes the fact that he is a descendant of Abraham, relates him to the Abrahamic covenant. That's Matthew 1 1. It also emphasizes his Jewishness. So, that's two aspects Abrahamic covenant and Jewishness. Point number four, the second title is The Son of David. Again, this emphasizes his royal descent to David, and second, his relationship to the Davidic covenant. So, Son of David emphasized royalty and relation to the Davidic Covenant. Fifth title, Son of Adam, used in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 38, relates Jesus to true humanity. True humanity. The sixth point, fourth title, He is the Son of Man which emphasizes his humanity. It has an eschatological emphasis coming out of Daniel chapter 7, which demonstrates that he is the ideal man who will return from heaven and fulfill the creation mandate to uh, conquer the world and to uh, dominate, have dominion, exercise dominion, and rule over all creation. Uh, seventh point is the fifth title, Son of Mary. This emphasizes the virgin conception and virgin birth. So this is found in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. All of those emphasize different aspects of His humanity. And then the eighth point is the sixth title, Son of God, which emphasizes His undiminished deity. His undiminished deity. Okay, that focuses on the aspect of his sonship. This is the title that's in view in Hebrews 1-2. So let's look at the context. Hebrews 1-4 just does uh, for us, uh, sets the stage for the whole book of Hebrews. And we have to think our way through these four verses. They are just loaded. This is one of the most profound statements in all of the... New Testament, so we have to think about each clause, each word is just loaded with implications about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is designed to lay a foundation and set the stage for what the Lord is doing through church age believers in this dispensation. One of the difficulties that we run into as we get into all of this is that these terms are so pregnant with meaning, and most believers today are so biblically ignorant that you read through this and you go, oh, well, that's nice, and move on. And you don't get the impact of what the writer is saying, and you don't, you don't uh, uh, almost feel, don't we love that word, Feel the impact of it because this is extremely powerful statements that are being made here in these first four verses, and they lay the foundation for everything that is said in subsequent verses. So let's just review. Hebrews 1 1 should read in terms of a corrected translation. After God spoke, it is a temporal, adverbial participle that begins the phrase, so it's not God spoke because it's not a finite verb. It's a participle. After God spoke, uh, in various forms and in various ways, in time past, to the fathers, that is, to the Jewish fathers, uh, by means of the prophets. And so there's a parallelism between that statement talking about what happened in time past, in the past, to the fathers, by means of the prophets. In contrast, today, in these last days, and here's a term, these last days, that covers the entire church age dispensation on into the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, because this is a finality here, the verb here is an aorist, uh, active, indicative, it's a culminative aorist Indicates the finality of this speaking Of this revelation And the term these last days Is not something that just refers to that final period You've know, you got to get a quiver in your voice In the end times When Jesus is about to return It covers the whole of the church age period Because the return of Jesus at any moment it is an imminency not immanency with an a but imminency with an i it can happen at any moment and so we're always in the last days we're always can be in the final generation in fact satan has no more clue than you or i as to when the lord's going to come back so what does that mean? That means that in every generation, Satan has to be ready. He has to have a man on the scene that could be the Antichrist. He has to have someone on the scene who can be the false prophet. He's got to be ready to pull it off at every generation, because he doesn't know when it's going to happen. That means that there, ha- that I would say, there's been some legitimacy to the speculation that it was, you know, Charlemagne or Napoleon or, or Hitler or you know, Bismarck. Saddam Hussein, any of these potentially could have been the Antichrist because Satan always had to be ready with somebody. And so it wasn't just foolishness for Christians to look out there and go, well, maybe it's so-and-so. I mean, we don't know, and you won't know if you ever see the Antichrist. Well, you've been left behind. You don't know who it's going to be, but Satan always has to have somebody ready so we 're always in the last days, and we have a finality of revelation given to us. Now, when we looked at the at the uh, exegesis of this last time, we saw that the timing of this is in the last days, which is in the church age, everything from from the ascension of Christ on. Is covered in this phrase The last times or the last days The main verb is has spoken It's the aorist active indicative of laleo, And as the aorist tense It is a culminative aorist Which emphasizes the completion of the act The culmination of the act That it is this speaking is finished Active voice means that God performed the action And the indicative mood is the mood of reality he spoke to us by means of, it is an instrumental dative, by means of son. The word his is not in the original. If you have it in italics in your Bible, you can run a line through it. It is by means of son. It, is, it lacks the article. Therefore, it's what's called an anarthrus. A-N means no. It's a negative, a negative prefix. Anarthrus. Arthrus like article, same root. It uh, means without the article And in the Greek when it lacks the article It emphasizes the quality or the nature of something So it's emphasizing the superior quality of sun We would emphasize it in English by the sun We would make it uh, extremely definite In order to communicate that quality of uh, of the sonship And the uh, uniqueness of the sun And at that point we recognize that It has been the role of the Son throughout history to reveal God the Father. For example, 1 Timothy 6.16, I want you to note the order in which I'm quoting these verses, not in the order you find them in Scripture, but in a logical order to build a case, that talking about God the Father, Paul writes, "...who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light." Whom no man has seen or can, seen, can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Note that second to last clause, whom no man has seen or can see. No one has ever seen God the Father. No one saw God the Father in the Old Testament. Adam didn't see God the Father. Enoch didn't see God the Father. Noah didn't see God the Father. Moses didn't see God the Father. No Old Testament person ever saw God the Father. No human being has ever seen God the Father Luke 10:22 Jesus says all things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son notice that no one knows who the father is except the son that is a profound statement because what Jesus is saying is that the knowledge that the father has of himself is on the same level as the knowledge he has of the Father. He has complete exhaustive knowledge of the Father, just as the Father has complete exhaustive knowledge of himself. This is a profound and subtle claim to undiminished deity. He's claiming to know God as fully and exhaustively as God knows him. So he says, no one knows uh, who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him so the point is that it is the son's role to reveal the father and the point here is is that the way we know the father is by knowing the son now let me say that again this is this is Crucial to understanding the whole aspect of the deity of Christ Which is a doctrine that is under such assault today Is that you know God because you know the Son You don't have to know anything more about the Father If you know the Son, you know the Father And if the Son isn't fully God, then you don't know God We don't know God We're left with just as much of a guessing game as as in the Old Testament If all we knew was a, a prophet John one eighteen, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And the word therefore declared is the Greek word exegeo. You know the English form, exegesis. The Son has exegeted the Father for us. No one has seen God at any time. So no one has seen the Father at any time. This is affirmed again and again and again in the Scripture. So the only way we can know God is to look at the Son. The Son is the perfect representation of the Father and is the complete representation of the Father. John 5, 37, Jesus said, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Once again, reaffirming this principle that no one has seen God at any time. God is behind the scenes totally, that it is the Son, even in the Old Testament. It was the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the Garden of Eden. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who walked with Enoch. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who gave the blueprint of the ark to Noah It was the pre-incarnate Christ who comes to eat dinner with Abram in Genesis. It is the pre-incarnate Christ who appears to Moses in the burning bush. It's the pre-incarnate Christ who writes with his finger the Ten Commandments. It's the pre-incarnate Christ that appears as the angel of the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Who appears as the Lord of hosts The Lord Sabaoth in the, in the Hebrew Which means the Lord of the armies It is always the pre-incarnate Christ It's the pre-incarnate Christ Who absolutely exterminated the armies of Sennacherib As they stood outside the walls of Jerusalem God the Father does not appear in the Old Testament, it is the Son who appears because his role within the Trinity is to reveal the Father. And in John 12:45, "He who sees me sees him who sent me." You understand the impact of what Jesus says. If you see me, you don't need anything else to inform you about the Father." Now that's a profound statement, but flip the sentence flip the understanding of that. If Jesus isn't who he claims to be, if he isn't fully God, then we don't know anything about God. We're still in the dark. And that's why, one reason why the deity of Christ is so crucial. This isn't just something that later Christians decided was a good idea. They, they didn't just uh, gradually grow and evolve in their worship of this man, Jesus, and, and sort of pack on these traditions and end up at the Council of Nicaea uh, attaching deity to, to Jesus. The deity of Christ is something that is embedded profoundly in the New Testament and grows out of the Old Testament where he is called an uh, Isaiah uh, 9.6 that he's referred to as the mighty God in Micah 5.2 he is the one who comes forth from everlasting so the Messiah is clearly attributed in the Old Testament to possess full, uh, full deity as we get into that what we have to understand is ha- the importance of understanding the deity of Christ and how this came to an understanding In the early church For they recognize the very principle I've been driving home And that is that if you tamper at all With the deity of Christ Then you destroy our ability to know God Because if we don't If if knowing Jesus isn't the same as knowing God Then we don't know God and the Son is no more a significant revelation of God than any other prophet. You just reduce him to something. And this is what happens in Islam. Uh, Jesus is another prophet, just like Muhammad. Well, if Jesus is another prophet, just like Muhammad, we still don't know God. God becomes this unknowable out there. Now, to help us in our appreciation of this, we have to look at a few things that happened in, in, the, in the early church. One of the first attempts to try to explain the relationship of the Son to the Father was called subordinationism or adoptionism. And it's the idea that Jesus was subordinate in his essence to the Father and he's just sort of adopted uh, as deity or he is infused in some cases uh, with deity. That was the idea of dynamic monarchianism that that uh, there 's this power that is uh, infused in Jesus, usually at the time of the baptism of uh, where he 's baptized by John the Baptist, and insubordinationism it makes the Father God, but the Son and the Holy Spirit are less than god they 're not Fully God and this is Manifested in the ancient Heresy in the early church known as Arianism named after its follower Arius but it's the same Heresy that pops up throughout church History and is manifested Today by Jehovah's Witnesses that's The JW and it's also Evident in uh, Liberal Protestant theology And in the early church It looks something like this We'll put a Eternity past up on the screen, and then eternity future. The two vertical dotted lines indicate the boundaries of time from the creation to the end of human history. And so in the period of history, we have God as eternal going from eternity past to eternity future. But at some point in time, God infuses the human Jesus with deity, and at that point he becomes the Christ. Usually that's they, they try to attach that to the uh, baptism. And so he becomes a derivative God. He's not fully God. So if he's not fully God with full eternity, then once again we don't know God, do we? The popular form of this in the ancient world was known as Arianism. And in Arianism, the adoption really takes place in eternity past. Uh, Jesus is not eternal. Arius was a musician, and he wrote little praise and worship ditties that were sung throughout the ancient world. And that's a great way to communicate false doctrine is through music. So you always have to be careful... What you sing, not only the lyrics, but the music as well, but in this case the lyrics, and what everybody was singing was there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. So God is eternal, but at some time in eternity past, Christ is generated out of the Father, so he's not eternal, and then he becomes incarnate in time. So that makes Christ just another creature. But if Christ is a creature, He's not fully God, so we can't know God. And that's what came out of these early discussions in the church, is the importance of the deity of Christ, that if we don't have a fully divine Jesus, then we can't know God at all. We're still just uh, wandering around in the dark. A second attempt to explain the relationship of the Son to the Father was known as modalism. Modalism. And the easiest way to think of this is, is as masks are different modes of existence. And it's, it's almost every time I teach this, somebody comes up and says, you know, that, that, that's kind of the idea that I had, is that sometimes He appears as a Father, sometimes He appears as a Son, and sometimes He appears as the Holy Spirit. But in real modalism, he never appeared as any two of them at the same time. And this becomes a problem when you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because if there's only one person in one essence, and he just is expressing himself as different modes, then it looks something like this. You have the, you have God in essence. Sometimes he expresses himself as Father. Other times as the Son. And other times as the Holy Spirit but not all three or any two at the same time. So who's Jesus talking to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Is he just having a conversation with himself? Or is he truly praying to the Father? So modalism was another failed attempt to explain the relationship of the Son to the Father. And it wasn't until they met at the Council of Nicaea in 325 where they first clearly articulated, in terms of a theological definition, the undiminished deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the Council of Nicaea is getting a bum rap today from lots of people because they want to say that, uh-oh, Constantine ruled it, Constantine uh, enforced the decision because he was trying to uh, establish a conglomerate power through the church and unify his power in the... In the um, Roman Empire, and that just betrays an ignorance of what was going on at the time, uh, where Constantine called the conference because there was inner turmoil. Remember, there was only one church; you didn't have denominations, you didn't have Catholics and Eastern Orthodoxy and Baptist and Methodist and Methodist Baptists; you didn't have any of that. You just had Christians, and now they're all fighting over. Did Jesus have a beginning or not? And it's causing major disruption in the kingdom. I mean, this is worse than the Democrats in the 1968 Chicago Convention. They just can't get along at all. And so... Constantine calls this convention And they get together And it's typical of almost every church meeting You'll ever see I mean it's just classic Just hang around Christians for a while And you'll discover this They had this council of all the bishops That came from all over the Roman Empire And 10% of them were followers of Arius 10% of them were followers Of of the Bishop Alexander Of of Alexandria And his student uh, Athanasius and who were fighting for an orthodox understanding of the deity of Christ, and in between you had 80% of the people who never had a clue. And that's true in almost every church meeting. you got 10% who are wrong, 10% who are right, 80% who are wandering around in the dark, and that's why they're called sheep. And it never changes, and you, you can almost apply that to politics too. So at the Council of Nicaea, they articulate one of the finest Doctrinal expressions ever written in history We believe in one God, the Father, all-governing Creator of all things visible and invisible If you came out of a liturgical church background Roman Catholic or Episcopal Then you grew up quoting this in church And notice how it starts off with the Father and creation And then we get into the Lord Jesus Christ And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God Begotten of the Father as only begotten And the idea of begotten isn't birthing Begotten means that it's always present One is always present in the other So it's an eternal begotten That was the terminology they used At some point it just sort of human language Reaches its, its, its boundaries In trying to explain the eternality and infinity of God The Son of God, begotten of the Father, is only begotten. That is from the essence of the Father. He's identical in essence to the Father. God from God, that's the key phrase. God from God. He's not lesser deity. He is fully God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. That was the final decision. He's not a creature. Begotten, not created, the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and on the earth. That's right out of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. So it's clear that the Bible clearly affirms the full deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the politicians of the day favored Arianism. Because if Arius was right Then it reduces Jesus' deity And he's just another Creature And that makes room for other gods So you can make everybody happy And you can still worship all of these other gods And Jesus just goes on par with them So there was a political maneuver At the time And the unbelievers clearly understood The implications of that And that's what they were pushing for Because it allowed them to to skirt around the clear statements of the Bible and the exclusivity of the, the scriptural claims. Arius said, and this is a quote from, from Arius, God himself then in his own nature is ineffable. That means unknowable, unexplainable to man. God himself then in his own nature is ineffable by all means. That means you can't know him. The unbegun made the Son See, the unbegun is God the Father He makes the Son the creature He has nothing proper to God in subsistence That is, He's not the same as essence For He is not equal, nor one in essence with Him And to the Son He is invisible The Father is invisible If the Father is invisible to the Son Then you can't know the Son I mean, you can't know the Father you can only know the Son, but He's just a creature. And see, Hebrews 1 is arguing that we start off with a fragmentary, remember, in many, uh, in, in many fragments and in many forms, a fragmentary revelation of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the Son gives us a full, complete revelation of God. This is so powerful. We just lose that. Jesus is. To us a full, complete, sufficient revelation of who God is The Bible clearly affirms the deity of Christ For example, Romans 9, 5 Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternal, blessed God Clear statement of His deity First John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. See, it's the same idea of revelation. The Son has come and gave us understanding so we can know Him who is true, the Father. And we are in Him who is true and in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What's the true God? This refers, it should be translated to He. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is fully God. Colossians 2.9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now these are three or four verses that you should take down and note and underline because over the course of the next year you'll get an opportunity to, to witness to unbelievers and they'll say, well, how do you know that Jesus is God? Okay, well, let's open our Bibles and see. And so we can go to these passages and, and show how the Bible claims that Jesus Christ is fully God. So the point number one, the Bible clearly teaches Jesus Christ is God. Second point, his place in the Trinity shows that he is the revealer of God. His place in the Trinity shows he is the revealer of God. John 14:7 through 9, he's having this conversation with Philip. This is the night before he goes to the cross. And uh, Philip says, Jesus, how do, we, how do we know the Father? Show us the Father. And Jesus turns to him and says, If you had known me, Philip, you've been hanging around me for three years, so you know him in one sense, but he didn't really understand the doctrine of the deity of Christ. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus views himself as being completely interchangeable with the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know me. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Hello, Philip. You're a little dense tonight, aren't you? Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? See, this shows that you can be saved and not know God. See, most evangelicals want to run around and say, Do you know Jesus? And they think they're asking, Are you saved? But see, the Bible recognizes you can be saved just like Philip was, and not know God. And that's why John comes along in 1 John 2 and says, if you know the Father, you keep His commandments. And so many Christians, lordship, salvation people, come along and say, see, if you don't keep His commandments, you're not saved. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying if you don't keep His commandments, you're just ignorant about who God is. But you can still be saved, because Philip was saved, but he doesn't know God. Philippians then furthermore, let me skip down point number three. Point number two, his place in the Trinity shows that he reveals God. That's John fourteen, seven through nine. Point number three, Jesus never left his deity in question. He always articulated to his listeners that he was God. Now that would not have created any kind of ripple if he had gone to India or even if he had been in Greece. Because in India and Greece, they worship multiple gods. So, okay, here's just somebody else coming along claiming to be God. But Jesus isn't talking to people in India or China or in Greece. He's talking to strict monotheists in Judea. And so when he claims to be God, he's just rattling their cage. I mean, they, they, he, he's shaking the rafters and their whole world is is shaking because for, from their viewpoint, he is competing with the claims of God the Father, that there will be no other gods before me according to the first commandment. And so he is really driving home the fact that they don't understand the revelation of the Trinity as it was, although it's more subtle in the Old Testament, it's still there. So point number three, Jesus never left his deity in question, and this is why they crucified him was because they saw Him as a blasphemer. They clearly understood His claim to be God. Fourth point, both Jesus and the God that's referred to in the Old Testament, Yahweh, both Jesus and Yahweh receive full, ultimate worship. And you get this by comparing two verses. Philippians 2.10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, this is at the end of the tribulation, the second coming, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That includes unbelievers and demons. At the, name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And in Isaiah 45:22, God the Father is talking. He says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me, what? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. See, that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2.10. He didn't just generate that phrase out of thin air. He is relating the worship of Jesus to the worship of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And then we also see that the titles given to Jesus are the titles of God. And we, one example of this is given in John 18, verse 5. He once again is in a confrontation with the Pharisees. This is when they're coming to Him to take Him to the cross to arrest Him. And they, uh, they're, they're, the guards are coming out, and the temple guards, and the Pharisees are going to arrest Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're confronted by the guards who's coming And they that is the Pharisees and Sadducees Temple guards answered him and said Jesus are excuse me They answered him were the disciples and they, said, oh, they said who are you seeking They answered him saying Jesus of Nazareth Jesus said to them I am Now in some of your Bibles you have he in italics And it shouldn't be there Because he is, his answer I am Is a statement Of being God because Yahweh is from the the Hebrew verb to be, Hayah, and it's a form of the verb to be and it means I am that I am. So that God was known by His name, I am. So when Jesus said, I am, He is claiming full deity and He says it with all of the authority of deity because in verse 6 we see, Now when He said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. When he said, I am, it was just this, you know, it wasn't loud, it wasn't jarring, but it had the voice of the throne of God, and they just knocked them all to their, to their, to the ground. And it was a tremendous expression of his deity. And nobody ever spends any time talking about this. But here they come up, and there's this whole cohort of guards, of Roman soldiers, and Jesus just utters two words, a go and me, and it just knocks them all down, flat on their backs, flat on their faces. They're just all knocked down flat, and they're probably looking at each other, what just happened? And then they all get up and dust themselves off, and then they move to arrest him. And this must have been a phenomenal situation. But he clearly claims to be God. Now, when we think about the Trinity, we have to recognize that the Son is equal to the Father, the same essence. Son is equal to the Father, but there's also within the Godhead a subordination of role. There's an equality of essence, but a subordination of role. So that the Son says, I can do nothing unless the Father gives it to me. So he's under the position of authority, and this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gives us a framework for understanding two divine institutions in Scripture, the divine institution of marriage and the divine institution of family. Now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not a family. You don't have the Father and then a mother God, put Mary in there, and uh, and then you get the baby Jesus, which is what happens with some groups. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit But within that framework You have an essence of An equality of person And you have a distinction of role And this is foundational To any thinking about society Whether that social group Is as small as a marriage A husband and a wife That they're equal in person This is why uh, both husbands and wives Are enjoined to love one another But there's also a subordination of role within the family. The husband is the leader in the home, and the wife is the one who follows the leader. She, the woman was created to be a helper or an assistant to the man. This is the, the woman's primary responsibility is to enhance the man's role in the plan of God and God's calling in his life. And so the woman is under the authority of the man. But this doesn't mean she's inferior. It doesn't mean she is less capable. It doesn't mean that she is uh, mentally insufficient. It just means that she has a different role to play than he does. There is equality of person, but there is a subordination of roles. same thing happens in the family. Uh, You may have children who are very smart. You may have children that are smarter than you are. And unfortunately, some of your children think they're smarter than you are, but they're not. But there is an authority role there. But there also is an equality of person because we're all created in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 126, God created them male and female. Uh, they're both in the image and likeness of God. So that is that, that, that understanding the Trinity and the relationship of father and son is a foundation for understanding uh, any kind of social structure. You take a nation. You have uh, millions of people now. They're all equal. This is what gives a foundation to this country where we can have equal freedom for every individual. But there's an authority structure. And you have an authority within the nation. You have the authority of government. You have the authority of the police officers. You have the authority of the courts. You have a different authority structure, and you respect the office of the authority, but that doesn't mean that the person who's in the White House or the person who is on the judicial bench is smarter or any uh, more equal than anybody else. They are the same. That's why we're all equally under the law. And it's only on the basis of this Trinitarian framework that we can think in terms of of a representative government and true freedom for the individual. It's interesting if you think about a map and how the world is laid out, and you think about all the nations that developed any concept of freedom of the individual. wasn't in the Middle East. Wasn't in Asia. It didn't develop in those countries. It developed in, in, in the countries where there was an emphasis on Christianity in Greece, in Europe, and where did it come from from there? It came over to the Western Hemisphere. You go into pre Columbian days and you don't have that kind of individual freedom among any of the aboriginal groups in either North or South America. Why? There's no basis for it in terms of ultimate reality. Only the Bible gives us that. And then the more Christianity developed after the Protestant Reformation, and its greatest expression of consistency was in the English-speaking countries, the influence of people like John Knox and the influence of... uh, other theologians and Puritan theologians in England uh, during the uh, 16th, latter 16th century and 17th century developed out all of this thinking that laid the groundwork for an understanding of individual freedom in English-speaking countries so that when you then go down through history to the uh, American colonies and the War of Independence, that there, that's just why in America you have the greatest understanding and expression of freedom. Of course, it's all been eroded, and you've had all kinds of problems the last 200 years, but that's another story. The foundation is based on an understanding of the Trinity. Now, that's something you were never taught in any American history class. Okay, let's move on. So, Jesus Christ is fully God, and then his deity is reinforced by his position as king. It's reinforced by his position in king, which when it's realized is when you get uh, the realization of Psalm 2.9, which is an expression of what happens when Jesus comes back and defeats the rebellious nations at the second coming. You, meaning Jesus Christ, shall break them with a rod of iron. That's his authority. He will destroy the nations. And that comes from his deity. Now, when we we'll get back to Hebrews 1.2, we read that God has, in these last days, spoken to us, By means of His Son. Now we have a greater understanding of who Son is. Why He speaks through His Son? Because it is an expression. The Son, as the Word or logos of God, is the complete and full expression of who God is. So comes with that authority. It's not a derivative authority. Whom He has appointed... Heir of all things. Now, the subject of the verb is God. So, the verb tithemi, which is an aorist active indicative, aorist meaning once again a culminative aorist, completed in the past. This act of appointing him occurred in the past. There's a difference between an appointment and a realization. Just as Prince Charles is the crown prince, but he is not the king. So Jesus is appointed heir of all, of all things, but he does not take that possession yet. That doesn't come until his return at the second coming. So the word tithemi means to set in place, to place something, to assign a place, establish or appoint to a position So we could translate this That God has in these last days Spoken to us by means of His Son Whom He has established or appointed Or assigned a position As the heir of all things As the heir of all things Now what does that mean? This word heir is the Greek word kleronomos Kleronimos is the noun. Kleronimia is another noun. But a Kleronimos indicates the heir. Kleronimia talks about the inheritance. Kleronimos refers to one who is designated as an heir or possessor. And that's the idea. We have to understand this concept of inheritance. As soon as I say inheritance, what you're thinking about is someone dies and leaves you something. That's what you think of in terms of inheritance. That doesn't really capture the biblical concept of inheritance. The biblical concept of inheritance has to do with possession or ownership. Possession or ownership. So we need to take a little time and go through the doctrine of inheritance. The doctrine of inheritance. Now one of the things I want to point out here by way of application is that when Jesus Christ is appointed heir of all things, what is happening is that this phrase is pointing to a future reality. It's a, he is now appointed, but the inheritance is yet future. In fact, this b- builds the idea, and in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the Reformation Church, among the Puritans, this was one of the many passages they would go to to uh, establish a savings-oriented uh, economic philosophy. Because wherever Christianity has gone, there's always been this concept of preparing for the future. And so instead of being just a consumer or or, or, or economy of pure consumption, it built on the fact that we're doing something for the future, so it always produced a culture that that saved. And what happens in the Puritan theology and the Puritan ethic of of the uh, 17th century England is that they take this application and they save their money. And so you build wealth and you pass on wealth from one generation to another by saving money, not by just consuming. And what happens is, as you go through the 1700s, there has been an accumulation of wealth, and that accumulation of wealth is then used to finance inventors and others, who, which brings on the Industrial Revolution. So the fact that you have the Industrial Revolution coming along at the end of the 1700s isn't coincidental to the fact that prior to that you have the development of the Puritan work ethic. Puritan work ethic comes out of the Scripture, the idea that you're saving uh, for the future. The non-Christian idea always mortgages the present or the future for the present. You always spend a day, and hopefully somehow things will take care of themselves in the future. You're not future oriented at all. You just live for the, for the present, for the big now. And that's what's happening in our culture. You can just see the influence of those pagan ideas. The future doesn't matter. Just live for now, 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 the pleasure of the present. Now, point number one, under inheritance as a Possession. In the Old Testament, inheritance referred to the ownership of property. Inheritance referred to the ownership of property, especially property that is passed on from one generation to another. It was to stay within the tribe or the family group. That was their possession. So that if God uh, distributed it to this tribal group, it was to stay in that tribal group. It wasn't to go out. So it was a genuine possession that was just transferred from generation to generation. This is seen in the episode described in Numbers chapter 36 with the daughters of uh, Zelophehad. The property that belonged to Zelophehad was to go to his daughters because... He did not have a son, and under the Mosaic Law they operated under the law of primogeniture where the eldest son inherited, but where there's no son, it went to the daughters. So in Numbers thirty six two we read and they said the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance. Now there's our key word. It's the Hebrew word Nahala, meaning inheritance, heritage or possession. And we want to latch on to that word, possession. That the land was given as a possession by Lot to the children of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad, who died, to his daughters. And so part of the Mosaic Law recognized that if a man died and he had no sons, that the ownership of the land passed to the daughters. But they could not marry outside the tribe. They had to marry inside the tribe. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. So the inheritance or the possession of the children of Israel shall not change hands from one tribe to another. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance, that is, the possession or ownership of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe. So it all stays within the family, and you don't lose it. This is how you, you know, it's just embedded within the Mosaic Law, this whole idea of passing on property from one generation to another. No death tax, no inheritance tax. It's how wealth is accumulated so you can build for the future. This is why Christianity has always had, wherever Christianity goes, it builds a savings-oriented community. Unless you have a bunch of Christians like you do today who are so in- in- infused with pagan ideas that they're living like unbelievers, and they just spend, 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 they run up to credit cards, and they just have this massive amount of debt, which just shows that they don't under- they've never been taught Proverbs. They don't know anything about what the Bible teaches about how to handle money. And they get themselves in trouble Verse 9 of Numbers 36 says Thus no inheritance, no possession, no ownership Shall change hands from one tribe to another It protected the tribes from one generation to another Point number 3 The words inheritance, property, possession and ownership Are basically interchangeable ideas In the original inheritance property possession ownership are virtually synonymous now the interesting thing is that certain categories of people lived in the land of israel but they didn't own the land they had no inheritance in the land sojourners that is we would call them uh, legal or illegal aliens travelers those who were just there for a temporary time under a uh had, had, had their green card, but then are their temporary uh, work visa, and then they were going home. The strangers these are the uh, legal aliens that are in the land. In fact, I notice that one of the new translations isn 't using the word aliens anymore because young people think that that 's ET or something out of Star Trek, so we 're not going to use the term aliens. Uh strangers, even Lev- Levites, did not have an inheritance in the land. That's why that, that we saw that in our study on tithing. That's why the tithe was given to the Levites. They had no possession in the land. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the land but never owned the land. Now, the reason that's important is because there are going to be believers that live in the millennial kingdom, church-age believers that live in the kingdom but don't have an inheritance in the kingdom because there are failures in the, in the Christian life and the church age. That's the model. That's the application, but that's not relevant directly to our study right now. So Exodus 12, verse 48 is a passage uh, to substantiate that, but I'm not going to go through all of these. I'll just stop at uh, Numbers 18.20. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance, Nahal. That means to inherit or to possess. You shall have no inheritance in their land or any portion among them. I am your portion, Helik, That is your share. It's like meros in the New Testament. It's like this is your part of the inheritance. God is telling the Levites, I'm your inheritance, your relationship with me. I'm your portion, I'm your share, and your inheritance, nachalah, uh, among the sons of Israel. So this is where we get our basic uh, Hebrew word group. Okay. Point number five. In the millennial kingdom, there will be those who live there but don't possess uh, an inheritance. And this is what happens to believers who continue in carnality according to Galatians 5, uh, 19 and 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They live in carnality and they have nothing rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. And so they uh, enter the kingdom, yet it's through fire and they have no inheritance. Now, point number six, inheritance was given positionally or potentially on the basis of grace. It's given to them, and just as it was given to the nation Israel, think of the Exodus generation. It's given to them, but they never experienced it, did they? Because of carnality, they never entered the land. It was never theirs. They never actually owned it. So it's given on the basis of grace, but experiencing it is on the basis of what? Obedience. Skip down a few of these verses. Joshua 14 8, 14 9. We're running a little short on time, so I won't go through the verses, but you can just jot down the references. And then the seventh point the possession of the land, therefore, was conditioned on obedience. It was merited. The same way, ownership in the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, those phrases you have in the New Testament, doesn't mean entering the kingdom. It means having an ownership in the kingdom or having a ruling and reigning responsibility. The possession could be lost, as seen in the case of Zelophehad's daughters. Uh, Genesis uh, 17, 14 talks about one who was uncircumcised would be cut off from his people. He wouldn't have an inheritance in the land. He may live there, but he wouldn't have an inheritance there. Uh, Numbers 14.24 talks about Caleb and his obedience, and because of that he uh, would take full possession of his land. But there were others in his generation who never entered the land. Point number eight, the entire Exodus generation had become God's firstborn son, yet with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, none of them made it in. They They had it positionally, but not in reality. They never realized that inheritance. Point number nine. I only have ten points, so I want to wrap up. Though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and possession. So we talk about two different categories of inheritance. Everyone has God as their inheritance. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion, helech my portion forever. Psalm 119, 57. The Lord is my portion I have promised to keep thy words. In Psalm 142, 5, I cried out to thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So everybody has an inheritance in God, but only some had an inheritance in the land. The same is true when we get to the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone is an heir of God, but only some are joint heirs of Christ. And we see this in in the tenth point. For the church age, Christ... uh, is given ownership of all things And the believer shares in that ownership As a joint heir in Christ Only as we mature as believers The inheritance is given to Christ But we only share and have a joint heirship If we are obedient Now let me show you the verse here I always love doing this Romans 8:17 says And if children, then heirs And here's how you you see this in your English translation. It's an interpretation. Then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Notice the comma comes at the end of Christ. And it makes it look like heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are synonymous. You're heirs of God and you're joint heirs with Christ. But that's punctuation. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. In the Uncho manuscripts there wasn't even a space between the words They just all ran together No punctuation Punctuation is an interpretive decision Let's have a little exercise Look at the words up on the screen Now how do you punctuate that sentence? Woman without her man is nothing Now I would bet if you run true to form Most of the ladies sit Interpreted it this way Woman Without her Man is nothing Now men You probably punctuated it this way Woman without her man Is nothing See in one sense Woman is nothing In other one, man is nothing But it all depends on where you put the commas So if you insert the commas in the wrong place In Romans 8.17 You end up Missing the point. If children, then heirs of God. If you're a child of God, you will be an heir of God. That's your guaranteed inheritance. And joint heirs with Christ, no comma. Joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him. See, being an heir of God is part of the grace package of salvation. It's not dependent on anything. But you're an heir of Christ if you suffer with Him. See, it's conditioned on something. It's not just belief in Christ, it's living out your Christian life in the midst of adversity. And we'll see this when we get to it on Sunday night in and, and our study in Revelation. We'll deal with the many passages in, in Hebrews that deal with this suffering, why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer in the flesh. Because it lays the groundwork for what we go through in the Christian life. And the suffering doesn't have to be something massive, it's just living in the cosmic system at its very basic level. Living in fallen flesh with a sin nature. So if we are we joined ears with Christ, if we suffer with him, that is, if we apply doctrine in the midst of testing and temptation, that we also may be glorified together. This lays the foundation for understanding inheritance. It means possession. And Christ becomes the heir of all things, Hebrews 1-2, the possessor or owner of all things. He is designated that, but He doesn't become it yet. We'll talk about the implications of that for Christ as heir next Thursday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Thank you, Lord, for this time this evening to go through this material to gain a greater understanding of what this means that Christ. Uh, Is has been designated the heir. You have appointed him as the heir of all things. Father, help us to understand what that means for us in a Christian life, that this elevates us to a a standing that is far beyond anything experienced by any believer in the Old Testament. We pray that you would help us to uh, understand these things as we meditate on it, think about it, and that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with what this means for our own spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.